Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, before we get started, a shout out to recent listeners who left a review on iTunes for the podcast. Thank you to BAH0125, who wrote last week, Raising Two Tweens and your podcast are insightful and are my new way of enjoying my morning power walks, physically and mentally empowering me before the day begins. Wonderful advice and love your podcast. Well, I want to just thank you for taking me on your walks, BAH0125, and my sincere appreciation for the five-star review and your kind words means the world to me. And thank you for S. Catherine B. for your beautiful review. I really enjoy and have learned so many wonderful things for this podcast. Robin always covers important and helpful topics. And to Erica NYC23, who wrote Parenting Tips from Someone Who Gets It. One of the things Erica Uh, also wrote was listening regularly always makes me feel like I'm not alone in this parenting roller coaster. Well, thank you so much. I love being with you on the roller coaster and I really appreciate that five-star review. And we're so excited that we have these amazing experts helping us on this roller coaster as well. We are going to talk about how to raise kids who really just don't act like big jerks today, who aren't racist, who aren't sexist, who aren't rude or stingy bullies, but rather those who think of others, finish what they've started, tell the truth, show empathy. I know, tall order, right? Why? Because from social media to TV programs, movies, and even in the adults they see in leadership positions, kids are being exposed to messages that being selfish and obnoxious and cruel is okay and actually gets things done in life. Hate crimes among children and teens are rising while compassion among teens have been dropping. This has been referred to as a crisis of kindness by our next guest. We want our kids to show empathy and resilience and positive action, but many of us struggle with how to make this happen. The good news is that science the hundreds and thousands of studies done by reputable scientists and researchers over the years paints a picture that gives us a connect the dots kind of thing to help our children thrive while also raising them to be kind, anti-racist, empathetic, good people. So what can we learn from the science? For that, we have my next guest to thank who has written a book to help us understand the science and use it in our own homes. Melinda Wenner-Moyer is a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and a regular contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, and other national magazines and newspapers. She is a faculty member in the Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Her first book, which is entitled How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Beep! Blank Holes, was published in July 2021. I've had the pleasure of being interviewed by Melinda for the New York Times a few times, as well as for Undark and her newsletter, and she always does such thorough research. I just want to welcome you, Melinda, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you, Robin. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be here too. And it's so funny to be interviewing you after all these years now with you interviewing me. It's like tables are turned. It's such an interesting thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's totally, it's a very weird thing for me to suddenly be interviewed when my whole career I've been doing the interviewing. So yeah, it's very- That is crazy. Well, before we launch into all of the great research that you've done and what we can learn about it, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested in writing about raising kids who are compassionate and empathetic and thoughtful and kind and who do not act like big jerks? 
Yes, absolutely. What gets me up in the morning? That's a good one. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. Hey, um, I mean, there you go. Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, I coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Coffee's I mean, but I, I, I feel like I wake up in the morning and I'm like, what, what am I going to get? I want to get something done today that I feel good about. And I kind of wake up I try to wake up in that frame of mind. It doesn't always work. Um, but I kind of like, I, I wake up and I'm like, okay, I want to do something good today. And so that that's something that gets me out of bed. And I guess I could say my book kind of falls into that um, mm-hmm. on a very long scale, long-term scale. Um, but why I wrote it. So gosh, this was um, like two and a half years ago. I was just getting increasingly frustrated by what I felt was a lot of bad behavior that I was seeing happening around me. Um, It was right around the time of the Me Too movement coming to light. And I just feel like I kept hearing about things that that were unsavory, that people behaving in unsavory ways. I kept, I saw it on TV. You know, there was just, I felt like there was just a lot of bad behavior. And I was also hearing about bullying rates going up and, and hate crimes as well. And that really got me thinking as a parent about my kids and who were they going to become and what were they going to learn from this behavior that they were probably being exposed to on some level. Um, and I realized like what I want more than anything else is to raise kids who are going to be good human beings and not grow up to be jerks. And so, and, and I started talking to other parents and realized they were really feeling the same way. And it felt like this was, you know, becoming a central kind of parenting question, you know, it used to be, and it still is, of course, to some degree, like, how do we help our kids succeed and get into college? But I felt like there was more to of a conversation of how do I just raise a good person? And so with my background in science journalism, and, you know, I love digging into science and translating it to a lay audience, I, I started digging in and I realized there's a lot of research to answer this question. A lot of it was counterintuitive and surprising. And that's when I was like, I think this is my book. You know, I, I think this is what I want to focus on and maybe I can help other parents and maybe collectively then if we can, you know, learn about what are the most constructive ways to do this, then maybe it will be something good that I can do for the world and get me out of bed every morning. So I agree with you on all of that. It's really been very helpful to read the research and you created a book that has a lot of different sections that explores the research in various areas. Towards the beginning of your book, you talk about a disciplinary approach that I also subscribe to and talk about in my forthcoming book based on this podcast. And that's induction in which we don't only empathize with our children's feelings when they are in distress or upset or angry, but also talk about how their actions affect other people. As in when you throw snow in our neighbor's walkway, they have to shovel it again, or someone might slip and fall, or that could make them feel frustrated and like we don't care about them. And I was thinking of sort of holding that nugget in my head while I was reading your book and uh, thinking about how this idea of highlighting how other people feel and how other people are impacted by our behavior can be an important thread in discussing many aspects of not being a jerk from racism to sexism, to telling the truth, to finishing what you've started. So how do you see this and how can we use this idea of helping our children see the impact of their actions on others to get them to see that their choices should not be chosen just because it serves them, but because they're kind and helpful and thoughtful towards others as well. Yeah. I loved the research on induction. I had never heard of this. If I'm perfectly honest, I, you know, I, I'd never heard of this approach, but when I was digging into, you know, what are the kinds of disciplinary strategies that really foster kindness and that we can see, you know, when, when parents use them, their kids actually become more generous and kind induction was one of the big ones. And this was yeah, developed back in the 1960s, but I hadn't heard of it until I started digging into the research and you described it beautifully, just this idea of always kind of connecting your child's choices and behaviors to their effects on other people. And you can do this in so many ways. Um, like, so I feel like one thing I learned about myself as a parent, and I think a lot of parents do this is often, you know, we're, we're tired, we're, we're in a hurry, you know, or whatever. And 
we want to make a request of our kids, like, please, you know, pick up that trash off the floor or stop doing this or, you know, stop jumping on the couch or please don't slam the door. And we just make these requests, but we don't like connect the dots in terms of why we're asking our kids to do this. Um, and it, you know, and I'm sure to our kids, it's, it's like, oh, it's just another, you know, my parents are just asking me to do things for the sake of asking me to do things and being annoying. And I, I realized it became much more effective if I actually went one step further and I explained why I was asking my kids to do it. And, you know, and, and not just why, but like why in terms of how it affects me or other people or, you know, their siblings, their dad, whatever. Um, and that then I, I noticed that it, it, it helped my kids realize that I think ultimately it helps kids realize, you know, that they are not just living in the world, like their own little, you know, their own little planet, they are connected to everyone else. And in order to really foster kindness, I think we have to kind of think of ourselves as, you know, a part of a whole, and maybe that means part of your, you know, just part of your family or part of your community. You can think about it on so many levels, but the more connections we can make between our kids and the bigger whole that we want to highlight, I think the, the more they start to think of others when they're making choices and when they're deciding, you know, what to do in the world. And so, yeah, when my kids, leave Legos all over the floor. I think this is one of the examples I use in the book. Like, I don't just say, please clean up your Legos. I say, please clean up your Legos because otherwise I'm going to step on it or you're going to step on it. And it's really going to hurt. So every, I've just become, I think, I mean, it's, it's hard and I don't do it all the time, but I now try to like go that extra step every time I'm kind of either asking my kids of something or, or, you know, in some way pointing out a choice that might not have been the best choice or might not be the best choice. I'm always trying to connect it to others to sort of help them develop that framework of themselves as part of this bigger whole. And I think it also helps to develop this really important skill called theory of mind, which I talk about a lot in the book, which is essentially the ability for kids to put themselves in other people's shoes, to help them take other people's perspectives. And that is super important for the development of generosity and helpfulness too. Yes, it's it's beautifully done. And I can say that, you know, doing that certainly does help them to connect the dots. I was just thinking even last night, I, I got really frustrated. Look, we all get frustrated with our kids. And you're right, we don't do this all the time. And, and there are times when things just fall apart. And we're all human. But I remember last night, I was just so getting so frustrated with my son who, uh, you know, we were supposed to be in bed and then kept coming out and he was doing all kinds of things that were, oh, I was just getting under my skin because it was getting so late. And I, he got back into bed and I went in there and I was like, you know, you don't mean to be annoying to me, right? Like you're not trying to irritate your sister or your dad or me when you're making these choices. And he's like, right, I'm not. And, and that's like important to get like that ground rule out. Like their kids are not doing this on purpose. They don't want to intentionally leave a Lego on the floor so that you step on it. They don't want to irritate or make you angry. And then you can connect the dots even there. Okay. Well, when you, you know, get out of bed and go downstairs and now you want to eat a brownie and it's 9.30 at night. Yes, it's frustrating to me because <laughs> we're trying to get everybody to bed and I'm getting tired, I'm getting cranky. And when you do these things and go into your sister's room and wake her up, like these are things that are are not being kind to other people because they, they are getting thin. They get grumpy, they get sad, they get frustrated. And it, it does connect it even on that level. So you can do it after the thing happened, or you can do it before the thing is ha has happened. And it, it helps them to hopefully then think about it at that moment or for the next time. Isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the goal. That's the hope. I recently did this with my son actually too. He got he got in trouble on the school bus because he was making too much noise and he, he got home and he was so upset about it. And, you know, his perspective was like the school bus driver was just trying to embarrass and humiliate me. I wasn't being that loud. You know, it, this is an affront on me that he, that he got mad and he, he got separated from a friend who he was being loud with. And, and I sat down and I was like, well, let's talk about the school bus driver's job. Like what's, you know, what's the most important thing for him when he's driving the bus. And we were talking about, okay, he's gotta be, he's gotta look out for everyone's safety. He's, you know, he's got all these kids on this bus and he's got to drive as safe as possible to get everyone home in one piece. And, you know, maybe 
maybe to him, that loud noise, even if it wasn't loud to you, maybe to him, it interrupts his concentration. It makes it harder for him to drive. You know, and we just had this whole conversation about like, what was this like from the bus driver's perspective instead of from yours? And I, I hope it was constructive. And I think, I think at one point my son was like, I, I guess that's, I guess it could have been too loud for him to be able to focus on his driving. Okay. But yeah, that's, I mean, and I think that's kind of a form of induction too. It's like after the fact going around and, and explain, you know, trying to explore the effect of that behavior on, on somebody else. Right. You even talk about that later on in the book where you're talking about perspective and, and coming up with what is, what is the situation from the other person's point of view? And can you be able to say from her point of view, what, what she might be thinking and then allowing, especially you were talking about this in sibling relationships, like what, what do you think she was thinking in that situation? Like, for example, when my son barges into my daughter's room and she gets really angry, he gets frustrated because he just wants to say hello and he just wants to hang out. And you even use that type of example in your book. We're like, okay, what do you think that he, you know, she was thinking in that situation and then that person can correct them if they're wrong. So, and then vice versa. Well, what do you think? And then helping them to realize that there's another perspective that they may not have thought of because they're coming from their own brain, their own perspective, their own heart. And, and kids want what they want, of course. So it's, it's interesting to kind of take that thread and move it throughout, isn't it? Yeah, you can, yes, you can use this in so many different situations. I think that's, what's so amazing. It sounds so simple. And at first you're like, well, okay, how do I, uh, is this really a big deal? How do I do this? But then you realize like, there's so many ways that you can weave this into your daily discourse with your kids. And yeah. And I think each time you do it, you're helping your kids, you know, consider other people instead of, in addition to themselves, you know, and, and I think that's such a useful skill. Yes. So one of the things that you also dig into is motivation. And we did talk to Bill Sticksrude and Ned Johnson about their new book uh, about motivation a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but you talk about how some kids, you know, they hard work and doing things that aren't particularly enjoyable isn't like fun for anybody. Uh, I mean, even adults get grumpy when they have to do things that they don't really feel like doing. The problem is, that kids might start something like joining a soccer team or starting to play the tuba. And then abruptly they want to quit when it's not all fun and games and the shine kind of wears off the, the new part of it. You talk about linking effort to outcome and grit and being accountable, uh, well, well-placed praise in your book. So what does the science say about raising kids who stick with what they've started and how we can help them dig deep, be responsible, not quit when they're on a team or a group or in a band uh, or whatnot, when people are really relying on them so that they don't come off as big jerks? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, because we certainly have struggled with this in our house um, mm-hmm. when my when my son started playing the cello and then just, you know, he instantly wanted to be good at it. And he it was really hard for him to recognize that, you know, to get to get good, you really have to put in the effort and you really have to practice. And, and I think this is something that, that kids struggle with uh, all kids struggle with to some degree. Um, but I, yeah, I was really, um, really compelled by the research on, um, mindsets and how powerful they can be for shaping resilience and, and motivation in kids. So I'll just briefly talk a little bit about what the, what the mindsets look like and, and why they have the effects um, that they have. So you probably heard your listeners have probably heard of these, um, fixed mindset is, um, something that I think a lot of, I, I certainly fall into fixed mindset thinking with myself and my kids. It's something that is, is very natural. I think a lot of us were raised by parents who, who use it. And it's, it's things like when you say to kids, you know, you're so smart or you're so good at math, or you're so good at soccer, you're a natural, you know, and these kinds of this kind of framing, implies to kids that skills and smarts are kind of innate. Like you either have it or you don't, you know, you're good at this or you're not good at this. You're smart or you're not smart. And it creates this sort of black and white framework where, you know, kids think of it as, yeah, as something they can't change. And so the problem is when 
kids who are praised for say being good at math, then get a bad grade on a math test. They start to doubt the, the characteristic that they were praised for. They start to doubt that they are good at math. And, and if they think of it as, you know, an either or thing, then they're like, well, gosh, mom and dad must've been wrong. I'm not good at math. And therefore what's the point of even, you know, doing math then if I'm not good at it, I might as well quit while I'm ahead and, and, you know, do something else. And those kids who are praised for, you know, skills for smarts, they show less resilience when they are faced with a challenge or a failure, they give up because they become really focused on protecting their reputation. Instead of, you know, they, they still want to be thought of as being good at math or, you know, smart. And so they think, well, the best way to keep up appearances and, and look smart is to not fail. And so I don't want to do hard problems. I don't want to, you know, do things that I'm going to struggle at because then that's evidence I'm not smart. So let me just not do hard things basically. <laughs> so it has these really big implications for motivation and resilience. Whereas the other, the flip side um, is growth mindset and growth mindset is fostered by, as you said, um, praising kids for effort and tying effort to outcome. And so if let's say my kid does come home with an A on a math test, instead of saying, oh, you're, this must be because you're so good at math, you know, um, you're so smart. I will instead say something like, oh, you must've gotten a good grade because you worked really hard or you studied mm -hmm. really hard and that's great. Um, and what this does when we, when we are praising for effort, this changes the way kids think of challenges and think of failures. And they start to see, you know, challenges as kind of a part of growing and a part of learning. And, you know, you encounter a challenge and you get better at something. And so that's why, you know, in a way you're, you're also as a parent, it helps to frame challenges as opportunities for learning. And so, oh, you know, how do you get better at something? Well, you have to keep practicing. You have to get, do harder and harder things. And then your, your brain grows or your ability to play the cello grows or whatever. Um, and the research on this is really compelling. I mean, there's studies that like uh, kind of made my jaw drop in terms of how easily they illustrate the power of these mindsets. One of them I'll like very, try to briefly explain. This is Carol Dweck's work from Stanford. Mm -hmm. um, she had invited kids to come in and take an IQ test and half of those kids, um, uh, well, I think it's actually a third of those kids. She had, she said, you know, you did great on this IQ test, IQ test. it must be because you're so smart. And then another group, she said, you did great on this IQ test. It must've been because you worked so hard at the problems. Um, and then after doing that and, you know, half the kids getting the fixed mindset, half the kids getting the growth mindset, she said to all the kids, okay, who would like to do some more problems? I have hard problems, which you might not do well on, but you might learn something from, or I have easy problems, which you might not learn a lot from, but you'll do well on. And she found that the kids who were praised for fixed mindset, being smart, they, overwhelmingly chose the easier problems and the kids who'd been praised for growth mindset for working hard, they chose the harder problems. Um, and, and then it went further and she, she found that the ones, even when she gave hard problems to the kids who'd been praised for smarts, they gave up sooner. They just, they didn't want to put in the effort. Um, and the kids who'd been praised for effort, they tried harder. So you see this like immediate almost effect of this kind of praise on how kids will, approach challenges and, and think of, you know, hard things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, we have heard about Carol Dweck and, and her mindset, and it's so good to keep bringing it back into the conversation because it does make an enormous difference in how we praise our kids in, in so many different ways so that they understand that, it's not something that's just inborn that we do need to put effort in and that things are hard in the beginning and, and that's okay. We can get through it with effort and if we need help, that's fine too. So I, I, I do appreciate her work in this so that we're able to apply it to the idea of, of keeping with something. And again, you know, not to, not to uh, keep going back to it, but, the idea that you brought in in the beginning when we were talking about how our behavior is affecting other people, again, applies here because when we quit the team, when we quit the band, it does affect other people. So important to keep bringing that back in, uh, talking about hard work and also talking about how our choices are going to impact other people. Uh, you also talk about relationships in your book, friendships, you talk about peer bullying, you talk about sibling rivalry. So 
If you see that a child is teasing or picking on or antagonizing or bothering their peers, what do you say or do? What does the science say to say or do? And does the response differ if the target is a sibling or if it only happens once in a while? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind that I was surprised by digging into the bullying literature um, is that there are a subset of kids who pick on other kids or, or tease them or, you know, bully them even um, who don't really recognize that what they're doing is hurtful. Um, and I think that's something that is counterintuitive for a lot of parents. I think we have this idea of bullies as being, you know, these nasty kids and they know exactly what they're doing all the time. And they're just trying to be cruel. And I think those bullies probably, you know, they do exist. I feel like I grew up with one in my school. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but there's a lot of behavior that's sort of on this continuum where, um, you know, the, the, the child might engage in unkind behavior sometimes, and then also maybe be picked on sometimes and sometimes engages in behavior and doesn't recognize that what they're doing is hurtful. So I think this again, to like tie everything back together can come back to helping kids take other people's perspectives, because I think sometimes kids think, um, you know, I was just trying to be funny and I, I wasn't trying to be mean. So, you know, and, and to them that means, well, therefore I wasn't mean, um, and it can really help to kind of point out situations in which, or, or to, you know, try to help them take another child's perspective. Like, well, how would you feel if somebody called you that name um, on the playground? Even, you know, I know you were trying to be funny, but like, you know, how would you feel? Or you can think of a time when something similar did happen to them and they, they were upset. And, you know, remember the time that you went over to your friend's house and she called you that name and, and that didn't make you feel good. Right. And so this could be a similar thing where you're trying to be funny, but actually, your friend is not interpreting that as funny. They're, they're, they're feeling embarrassed. Um, so to the degree that instead of, you know, immediately jumping to the bad conclusion, like my, my kid or another kid was doing this on purpose and they're a bad kid and, and, you know, jumping into sort of the shaming like response, the negative response to instead think, gosh, it's possible that this kid really didn't know what they were doing and didn't intend that to happen um, and to take that step back, take that breath and, and maybe even, you know, ask questions, start out by saying, well, why, why did you say that? Or what do you mean by that? Or what were you intending there? And then engaging in a conversation that's not sort of filled with anger and shame, but just instead trying to sort of teach and help your child see the perspective more broadly. Yeah. And you bring in that information. We'll talk about this in a bit, but when it comes to race as well, which you're talking about, it's not about the intention. It's about the impact that it makes and that that is a valid thing that we have to look at the impact of our behavior, not just the fact that, oh, well, we didn't intend for that person to get hurt. We didn't intend for that person to be offended. Uh, so it, it's, it is important in many aspects. But before we move to talking more about gender and race, what is the impact of this or what, is, what are the studies telling us related to siblings when there is a bit of an antagonistic relationship and one is getting teased more than the other, or uh, one is getting picked on uh, or, or made to feel inferior by the other. How does a, a parent respond to that scenario? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. And it's not something that I think I directly address in the book, um, but I do, I, what I, one thing I can say to this is that often when we as parents don't get involved in our siblings fights and disputes. Cause, and, and for a long time, I think that was the recommendation, like just let your kids work conflicts out by themselves. That'll teach them conflict resolution skills, you know, just leave them be that this is often what happens that the more dominant or, you know, older, bigger child will win quote unquote, win an argument through kind of coercion or bullying. Um, and that is, not the kind of conflict resolution we want to be teaching our kids. Um, we don't want them to think that the best way to solve a conflict, resolve a conflict is through <laughs> coercion or bullying. But unfortunately, sometimes if we just let things be and we let our kids be, you know, 
figure things out for themselves, that's what ends up happening. And so one of the things I, I talk about in terms of sort of equalizing the relationship a bit more is to use a form of like to basically help your kids mediate, um, to mediate their, their conflicts and arguments. And this sounds kind of, well, it is labor intensive. I'll be perfectly frank. Um, it's a labor intensive approach that you're not going to be able to do all the time because we can't, cause we're so busy and we have so many things going on, but I have used this with my kids um, a handful of times. And then I've found that they then can sort of use it themselves after that. So it's like an investment, you know, um, uh, to do it a few times and, and, and see your kids learning how to do this on their own. So essentially what you do is when your kids are fighting, um, uh, in some way you kind of go into the room and you say, Oh, I hear a lot of angry voices. Um, and if you're, they're fighting over something, you know, you take the thing they're fighting over, put it away and say, okay, let's first, let's take a minute to calm down and think about, you know, maybe they take deep breaths and, and, and get to a point where they can actually have a conversation. Um, and then you, you help. So you go through the, the process that we were talking about earlier, where you let them see each other's perspective. So you say, okay, you, you say, okay, first um, to one of your kids, let me hear what happened from your perspective and no interrupting. I'm going to hear your, you know, the other child's perspective in a second, but just tell me what happened and, and how you felt. And, you know, let's just hear your side of the story. And then the next child you say, okay, well tell me your side of the story. And in doing this and in doing this in front of the children and each children, each child is hearing the other's perspective. You are again, you know, enriching their perspective of the situation. You are helping them understand the other child's feelings. Um, and you're also, you're not, this is really important, I think, because sometimes when our kids fight, we run in and we tell them, you know, stop yelling. And, and, and the implication there is like, your feelings aren't valid. You shouldn't be so upset. Stop being upset. When you go in and mediate, you are doing the opposite. You're validating their feelings. You're saying, okay, tell me how you're feeling and let's talk about it. And let's talk about why you're feeling that way. And I think that's an important part of this too. And then once you've done this and each child's had a chance to say their perspective, then you help them kind of problem solve a, a solution, a compromise. Like, okay, so everyone knows everybody's perspective. What could we do here to resolve the problem in a way that's you know fair to everyone? And when you do this, um, again, it can take like 10 or 15 minutes. You can't do it all the time. But I've found that, that my kids then, when they are edging toward a, another conflict, they start to sense it better. And they're like, wait, okay, let's talk about this. How can we figure out a way to, to, to come to a, a compromise? Like they see it coming and they try to figure out and, and problem solve themselves to come to a compromise before it gets into a fight. And that those compromises research has actually looked at, you know, are the, are the resolutions to these conflicts, if they're done through this mediation technique, are they more equal? Are they fair to the, you know, younger or more meek um, child? And yes, they are much more equal and they're, you know, they kind of get rid of the um, power dynamic. They help to alleviate the power dynamic between the siblings. So I don't know if that was helpful. That's I think a, that a was long great. <laughs> I, I think that's where my question really came from is that information that you provide in the book, because we know that when it comes to bullying research, when it comes to what bullying is, um, as I, I explain it through ABCD that, you know, you have an attack that's aggressive in some way. That's the A. The B is that the balance of power is unequal. Um, C is that it's consistent. And D is that it's deliberate. And when we're talking about that B, that power, that power imbalance, it's inherent in a lot of sibling relationships, because as you mentioned, you've got older, younger, bigger, smaller. And it is important to be able to listen to both people and try to get that balance back into a, a, a situation where everybody is feeling heard and everybody's feelings are, are valid. Sometimes it's interesting. We might think that always the older kid is going to be the stronger one. And it's not always that way. Sometimes the, the younger kid is favored in some way and, and listened to in a different way. So this can be helpful to everyone. And I, I think that's the, the research you're citing is so important to help us to really be able to listen. Now you talk about one of the areas that I did a lot of my underlining in the book was on sexism and racism, just so rich. It's so interesting and very timely right now. We have to be talking about it. It's super uncomfortable in a lot of ways. And 
I know that like, I'm going to be, I'm writing a, a, one of my chapters in my book is on diversity and race and gender and inclusion, how to talk about those things. So what are some of the most surprising or eye-opening things that you learned from your research about gender and sexism that you feel is vital for every parent to know so that we can raise kids who don't act like big jerks to those who are not the same gender as them. And perhaps at the same time, I mean, as an add-on, they would stand up for those who are marginalized. Yeah, that's a great question. So there are a lot of similarities between uh, the research on on sexism and the research on racism and kind of what we should be thinking about and keeping in mind and talking to our kids about. There are some differences too, but um, I think you know one of the one of the important things um, with regard to let's say I'm just going to start with race, but I'll, I'll connect it with um, sexism as well too. Um, there, there's an idea that I think a very well-meaning idea that a lot of white parents have that you know if you just don't talk about race, that your kids won't notice it and they won't notice differences in skin color. They won't pay attention to it. They won't make a big deal of it. They won't become racist essentially. And this is um, an approach known as colorblind parenting, where we really just try to parent in a way that 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 does not refer to race ever and it does not highlight it. Um, and as I said, it's very well-meaning. And I think a lot of white parents were raised in families that did this too. And so it's something that's very, feels very normal to us to do. Um, but the problem is um, that, you know, there is a very salient racial hierarchy in our world. And this is true of gender as well. And kids are like little detectives one of their big jobs when they're growing up is to figure out what's important in the world and figure out what categories matter, what social categories, for instance. And they very quickly can see that with race, for instance, you know, there's well, with both race and sex, there is a very salient hierarchy. They see that, you know, most people in power in our country are white. Um, they also see that most of them are men. You know, you look at who our presidents have been and you can see most are white men with one exception, who is a black man, you know? So kids are noticing these things. They're noticing it within their schools. Um, and of course, you know, they're, they're noticing also with race, like de facto segregation that happens. It happens within schools often with, um, with the gifted and talented kids more often being white, you know, there's all of these different ways that they're seeing these hierarchies. And the problem is when you're not talking about race and the reason for this hierarchy and the fact that racism has created this hierarchy and, and helped to maintain this hierarchy, then kids are going to kind of try to figure out why this hierarchy exists for themselves. And if nobody's talking about it, they're going to say, gosh, you know, maybe white people have more power because they're just better. And they're also going to say, gosh, maybe men have more power in society because they're just better and smarter. And these are inferences we obviously don't want our kids to make. So this is one, one of the key reasons we need to both be talking with our kids about racism. And we should also be talking with our kids about sexism. We should be explaining to both our daughters and our sons that, you know, the reason that men have more power, it has nothing to do with their, you know, innate ability or their smarts. It has to do with the opportunities they've been offered. And it has to do with, you know, sexism and discrimination. And if that's, that probably feels hard to talk about. And I, and I get that, but the research really backs up that if we have these conversations in age appropriate ways, then our kids become less prejudiced. Our daughters become more confident. The research has shown that when, when girls are told that, um, you know, the reason that there's um, more men uh, in the sciences is because of discrimination and not because men are better at science, that, that girls then become more interested in science. You know, they're like, oh, this isn't because I can't do it. It's, I can absolutely do this. And damn it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break that glass ceiling and I am going to do it. So having these conversations is empowering um, as well, you know, to our, to, for instance, our daughters, and it's not something that's going to scare them. Um, so yeah, I can go into a lot more detail, but I, that's kind of a, a big thing that just, we need to be talking about these issues with our kids. It makes a big Absolutely. difference. Yeah, you did. The, you talk about a really great study where they are talking about the effects of red shirts versus blue shirts in some different situations as kind of a symbol of how kids learn about this hierarchy. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So this is really interesting and something that I didn't mention when it comes to gender, um, which I think is also very important is that, um, you know, we don't talk about race, but we, as a society, because of our language and the way it works, we refer to gender all the time. It's in, you know, anytime we refer to a person and we use a pronoun, it is built in that we are, we are emphasizing their gender. Um, you know, and whenever we say, look at that lady or that man, we're emphasizing gender. We have different bathrooms for different genders, different sports teams, different happy meals. I mean, there are all of these ways in which kids are being hit over the head with the, the idea that gender is a really important category for humans. Like they get this immediately. They are like, wow, you know, mom refers to gender a thousand times a day. It must be extremely important. Um, Cause we don't say, we don't say, uh, oh, give the money to the, uh, the red haired person. We say, give the money to the lady. Right. Or whatever exactly. it is at the, uh, when we're, we're paying, uh, at a restaurant or something, it's, it's constant. It's constant. And when kids hear that constantly, they, they kind of intuit, well, gender must be a really important category. That must mean boys and girls, men and women must be different in really important ways. So to get back to the t-shirt studies, I felt like that was an important preamble. Um, yeah, researchers, they conducted some really fascinating studies. This is Rebecca Bigler's work. Um, she, okay. So she had, um, kids come into a classroom and at the beginning of the school year, they were assigned to either wear red t-shirts every day or blue t-shirts every day. And then, um, she kind of varied the classroom, the way that the teacher handled those categories in some classrooms, the teacher never, ever referred to the t-shirt colors. Like she never said like blue shirts go over here, red shirts go over here. She just it was never, ever mentioned in any way. Um, and in other classrooms, the teacher would call out the, the t-shirts, not in a, you know, she would never kind of have them compete against each other, or she would never say anything like the blues are better than the reds, but she would just say, okay, blues line up for PE and reds, you know, come next or, um, or blues, you get to go to the cafeteria first or whatever. She would just use them to, um, to help identify the kids in a way, in, in a very similar way that we use gender. I mean, we have, I don't know, my kids get lined up by gender all the time, like alternate, you know, boy, girl, boy, girl, or boys, you know, boys against girls in the, in PE today or whatever. So she was using these as categories that the, the teachers would use to, you know, to identify the kids in much of the same way that we do with gender. And what she found was fascinating. She found in the classrooms where the teachers just didn't refer to the t-shirts at all and ignored them, those kids in, did not develop um, stereotypes about the other t-shirt colors. They didn't basically become discriminatory. They didn't start to think of themselves as better, like the blues are better than the reds or the reds are better than the blues. They just kind of ignored the t-shirt colors and it became kind of an insignificant thing. But when the teachers just used those t-shirt colors to identify the kids, much as we do with gender, she found that the kids became incredibly discriminatory against the other t-shirt color and the blues became just super competitive. And they were like, I'm, you know, we're better than the reds and the reds were like, no, we're better than you. So just nodding to the existence of the categories was enough to create the, this really powerful, um, you know, feelings and prejudices about the other color. And so this helps to explain why when we just innocuously refer to gender all the time, we are setting our kids up to develop prejudices. Um, it's really fascinating work and there's, there's a lot more to it too, but that, that was a really, yeah. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. And I know that you did talk about how, you know, sort of answering the question of, well, wait a second, we just said like, you know, we've said many times that it is really important to talk about race, but now you're saying that if we keep pointing something out that they can have prejudices, but there's some right. nuances there. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I know it is really confusing, right? So given the t-shirt experiment I just described, I can imagine some people are like, well, then we shouldn't talk about race, right? Because, because if we're going to talk about race, we're just going to accentuate the categories. But so race is one of those things where we don't talk about it at all. But again, as I said, the kids notice this hierarchy. If there was absolutely no uh, difference in society between people of different races in terms of, you know, if there basically was no hierarchy, um, then yes, it's possible that race could become 
uh, category, much like hair color or eye color that people just don't really think matters. Like it's just a, a difference between people that, that doesn't matter, but because there are these very big differences in our society that our, our kids are noticing, the fact that we don't talk about race at all actually makes it kind of more titillating and more, it feels more important to kids. They're like, wow, race clearly matters, but mom and dad will not talk about it with me. And that means like, it's like extra, super important and like a secret important. And therefore like they actually ascribe like more, uh, more meaning to it because we really just don't talk about it at all. So it's like with gender, we, we overemphasize gender categories in a way that, um, that fuels prejudice, but with race, we avoid the topic so much that that's also a problem. So what we, what we need is like, kind of like a, a balance, but we also just really need to talk about the, the discrimination itself. And, you know, the, that racism explains the hierarchy that sexism explains the hierarchy too. So important. I, I would love to delve a little bit more in and play a game. We often play here, say this, not that you, you did a really good job highlighting this research on race and racism. And I know that this is not an easy feat because it's a taboo topic. And this is a taboo topic that we really need to be talking about and make it not taboo. So I'd love to, to talk about this. I'm providing scripts in my book on how to talk about this as well. And, and you having the science behind it. So awesome. So let's think about that science and come up with the, say this, not that if your child notices and mentions skin color often happens, young kids do this all the time or hair texture or some other obvious difference in another person play another person in a public space, as in his skin is really dark or she's got so many braids in her black hair. What does the science tell you we shouldn't say versus what we should? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay. Some things we shouldn't say, but that I think a lot of parents do sometimes say, cause it's, uh, cause it's, this is a hard, you know, race is hard for us to talk about and we're very uncomfortable. We shouldn't say, Shh, don't say that, or that's not okay to say, or that's rude. Or we shouldn't say, um, every, everybody's the same on the inside. That doesn't matter. So those kinds of reactions are kind of shaming our kids for noticing skin color. We're communicating in those responses that we don't want them to talk about it with us that, you know, it's, it's on some degree, I think some kids will take that as like race and skin color are bad in some way. Like mom has this really strong negative reaction to when I bring it up. Um, and also we're kind of invalidating their observation. If we say something like that doesn't matter or everybody's the same on the inside, it doesn't matter. We're basically saying what you just pointed out, you know, is is incorrect or not important. And, you know, and that's a, that's a kind of a shameful response. And the kid is probably going to think I'm never going to bring up race again with my mom. Um, so what you should say then in that kind of instance is, and this is hard because you're probably embarrassed in some way, but to normalize, to say, yes, yes, she does have darker skin than, than we do. And skin color comes in many or skin comes in many different colors. And that's wonderful. Um, or you can say, yes, you know, her hair is very different and there's different kinds of hair. And that's, that's really cool. Um, you can even, you know, explain why there's differences in skin color. If you want to get into like, yes, everybody has a chemical in their skin called melanin and different people have different amounts and that's what determines your skin color. So you want to respond in a non-shaming, you know, kind of like, yes, this, you observed this thing that's true. And this is something that I'm okay talking about with you. And there's, you know, nothing kind of shameful or bad about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. Let's do another one. If your child uses a word that shouldn't be used, uh, like calling native native Americans or indigenous people, Indians, what shouldn't you say? And what should you say according to the research? Mm, yeah, I, that's a great one. And I have experienced this <laughs> situation myself before. Um, something not to say again, is something that angry, like that's mean, that's horrible. Never say that. Oh my gosh shush, you know, be, be quiet. That's not okay. A very, you know, angry, um, shaming response is kind of not the way to go because it's very possible that your child doesn't know the, the baggage associated with that. They don't know what they're saying. They've heard it somewhere. So yeah, when I spoke with researchers about how to 
respond in that particular situation. A better thing to do actually is to ask questions, to try to figure out, you know, to say, oh, where did you hear that? Or why do you say that? Or what does that mean to you? That's an interesting word. What does that mean to you? And to, it also gives you a minute to sort of take a deep breath because it's never fun to hear your child say something that's very hurtful. Um, and, and then let them talk for a minute and explain, you know, oh, I heard that at school. I didn't know what it meant, but it sounded, you know, interesting or powerful or something. And once you've kind of gotten a sense of what your child meant, what he understands or doesn't understand, then you try to have, you know, a kind of calm, again, non-shaming discussion about, well, actually, you know, um, that's, that's actually a hurtful thing to say. And I know, you know, maybe you say like, I I know you didn't know that, or you may not have meant that, um, but here's why, you know, here's why that's, that's hurtful. And just try to give them an explanation without, you know, really making them feel ashamed for it. Right. Right. Great. Okay. Well, up the ante. If your child notices, let's say when you're going through a certain area that the homes or the buildings are really run down and all the people are people of color that they're looking, they're looking out the window or they're walking down the street and they're noticing that and they exclaim it out loud, what shouldn't you do or say? And what should you do or say? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think again, not kind of shutting them down with something Mm -hmm. angry, like that's not okay to say, or, um, it doesn't matter where people live or, um, you know, I'm sure they're very proud of their, you know, something Mm -hmm. that sort of invalidates their observation, I think, or Mm -hmm. makes them feel ashamed for having noticed that is not kind of the way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the way to respond, I think in with this one, I mean, with all of them, of course, depends on how old your child is and how ready, you know, you think they are to have certain kinds of conversations. But I think I would probably with my kids, um, say, you know, that's a really interesting and astute observation. Yes. Um, you know, there are neighborhoods where most people are white and there are neighborhoods where most people are black and, and then you can kind of, gauge where they are. Like, why do you, you know, do you have any thoughts on why that is? Um, or, you know, how have you noticed this in other ways? Like, Mm -hmm. have you noticed this, um, at school and kind of try to get into a conversation about, um, about racism, honestly. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, let's talk about why are these houses not as nice as the houses in our neighborhood? What do you think Mm -hmm. that's about? And, you know, and, and you can have as short of, or long of a conversation as you're able, but, you know, sometimes those kinds of observations are just such a great way in to having like a a deeper conversation, maybe over the course of a few days about racism and about discrimination and about, you know, the fact that uh, the civil rights movement didn't solve everything. We still have a lot of problems that we need to, you know, fix and fight against and et cetera. Exactly. I mean, this actually did happen to, to me and, and my daughter, um, when we were, uh, leaving the airport, um, in New Jersey. And, and she had an exclamation about it. Not out, it wasn't in, in public cause she was in the car, but, uh, we got into a great conversation about systemic racism. And I feel like in your book, you do talk a lot about let's take those opportunities. Like don't shy away from those because they're perfect ends to have the conversation and yes, gauge where your child is. You may not be getting into some kind of long 45 minute conversation, but this is an opportunity to get into the very things that perhaps you were avoiding or perhaps that are uncomfortable and actually even saying like, you know what, this has been an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. Um, and it, it's often something that we don't talk about, but this is something that has to be talked about. And is something that I've been wanting to talk to you about and, and get uncomfortable, talk about what's going on and, and what made her realize it. And what does she, she or he think about it? What do they think? And, and really get into it. What about if the child says something blatantly racist you know, as in all black people, this or all brown people, this. So what, what is the reaction according to the research supposed to be when your child is now echoing a blatantly racist statement that they may have heard or that they actually have come to the conclusion to, uh, you know, that conclusion after some kind of experience that they had maybe based on one or two things. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's those, <laughs> those moments are also great opportunities, even though as parents, we are probably totally mortified, mortified and upset by it. Right. Mortified. Um, but so I think, again, it's important to not completely like shut them down or berate them for having said it, but, you know, take a deep breath and say, oh, so why do you say that? Um, what makes you say that? Why do you, why do you think that? Um, and try to understand where they're coming from. And I mean, as I said, if kids are seeing, I mean, they are seeing this hierarchy and in to some degree, if they don't have alternate explanations, it's, it makes sense why they might come to a racist conclusion, right? It, it makes sense that they could think, yeah, it must be that, you know, black people just aren't as smart or as hardworking or something like that. And so when we hear our kids say that, we, I think we should keep in mind that based on what they're seeing, if they're not getting a lot of other information, this is a somewhat rational conclusion to make. It, it doesn't mean that, you know, they, I guess we just shouldn't always assume that they, they mean something terrible by it, but just that they're trying to make sense of the world that they're seeing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, ask, try to get more information about, you know, why do you, why did you say this? What makes you, what makes you say this? And maybe they will yeah, talk about the observations they've made and say, well, it makes sense based on what I'm seeing. And then you can start to give the other context that you need to give in order for your kids to really understand this very complicated situation better mm -hmm. and say, well, you know, and, and so you do want to use the moment, I think to, to teach and to, but in a very, non-judgmental, non-angry way. So, well, you know, actually there's a different, you know, there's a lot more information here that I think will help you understand this situation better, or maybe, you know, give you a different perspective on it. And I really want you to understand it because it's really, it's really important. And there's a lot of misunderstanding in the world about this. So let's talk, let me talk about this with you for a little while. Um, yes. yeah, it's hard though. It God. is hard. It's, it's uncomfortable even talking about now. It's, it's, yeah. it's just an uncomfortable situation because we've honestly done a pretty bad job at, at it, um, for so long. And, and, and I think we're trying to kind of get that, get that information and use the information that we're supposed to not talk about it. You know, that that's how a lot of us were raised or, you know, like we don't talk about it and we don't refer to it. And, you know, you're not, you're not going to the store and, and saying, go play, go, go pay the, the black person there, or, you know, you, you, we, we don't, we do the, the, the gender thing. We might say, you know, I might say the person in the blue shirt, but we don't typically call attention to race. And it's so important that we do so because people are marginalized. So we have to talk about this and, and, you know, we talk a lot about privilege in my house. It's so mm -hmm. important that we're, we're actually hitting the nail on the head right now so that we can make some progress in that area. Um, before we get to our top tip, can you tell us what we're talking you, in your book, you talk about screens and I know people are like pulling their hair out when it comes to screens these days. I mean, after the pandemic, like not after we're still already in there, but like, you know, everybody was home with these screens. It was like, oh my gosh, please not another screen. I want to throw that iPad away. I get a lot of messages. I want to like drown the laptop. I want to, you know, go back to the 1980s. So I don't have to deal with social media or all access video games, things of that nature. What message, like top messages do you feel like from the science that parents absolutely most need to relay to their children or know for themselves so that they can raise kids who are compassionate, kind, and well-rounded as they relate to screens? Yes, that's a great question. Okay, I would say the top piece of advice and the, and the thing that really just kept coming through in the research and in the things I read about screens and handling screens and technology is to be more of a mentor with your kids when it comes to screens and technology rather than like a monitor or, you know, a controller. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is, you know, we can limit screens in our home and, and not let our kids do social media and all these things, but at some point they are going to have the opportunity to use it. Maybe at friends' houses, you know, maybe when they're older and if they haven't had any opportunity to learn what's important and to have conversations with us about using screens in a, you know, in a constructive way and being compassionate and being kind and all these things, then they're, 
they're, they're going to have no idea what they're doing. They're going to be more likely to get into trouble to do things, you know, that, that we are not happy about with screens. So what the research really suggests is if we can, and it, it does feel like one more thing for parents to do, <laughs> but like, if we can kind of learn and, and use screens with our kids sometimes, like if our, if our kid comes to us and says, I want to download this new app, you say, oh, okay, well, let's do some research. Let's figure, tell me about this app. Let's look it up. Let's read about it. Let's look at the, um, you know, the, the rules and the, this and the, that, and let's, let's like, maybe let's try it out together and let's see how it works. I mean, obviously it depends on how old your kid is, whether they're <laughs> amenable to this, but you want to kind of be learning with them and talking with them about what they're doing. Because every time we, we have these conversations, we're kind of sharing our values and what we think is important for them to keep in mind and what we think, you know, what we expect of them when they're online or whether, when they're using an app or when they're playing a game. Um, and the research really backs this up that the parents who are more mentors with their kids with screens, those kids get into less trouble online and they're less likely to be watching porn. There's all sorts of different things, you know, but they're just, they, they know what they're doing a bit more. They're more responsible and more mature because you have been engaging with them about it. And this can also mean like use, you know, playing video games with your kids and trying to, you know, create family time around screens. That's a really wonderful thing to do. And that also is associated with, you know, better outcomes with kids and technology. So I would say that's probably like the, the key take home from that chapter. Yes. It's really entering their world and being part of their world so that you understand it better. And, and for those people who really want to delve into that deeper, I know you talk about them online, but uh, I mean, on, in your book, Diana Graber does an incredible job with this and Devorah Heitner, who talks about being a mentor um, instead of monitoring does a great job with that. And they've both been on the show. Uh, Devorah, I think, twice or three times. I'm not even sure. So you can delve into even more of the research on that and, and look at the information that they've done. Uh, in the meantime, give us your top tip. Where do, what, what can people really come away with from your book, from your research? What is the top thing that you want people to know after listening to this podcast or reading your book and really getting to know what you've been up to? Hmm. I would say the top tip is to lean into hard conversations, um, awkward conversations, the, 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 the things that we want to avoid talking with, with our kids, we should be leaning towards and we should be doing more of. So whether this is race or sex or sexism or pornography or, you know, technology, all the things that we just like, kind of don't, you know, we think our kids don't need to know this, or it's better if we don't talk about this, or usually we're wrong when we think that. And the better approach, according to the research is to, is to really try to have those conversations and to bring them up and to, when our kids make comments to use those as opportunities to have these, these difficult conversations. And, and I guess connected to that is like what we talked about earlier, you know, connecting dots, like when we're when we're asking our kids to do things or we're talking to kids about things like just trying to, um, in those conversations, like bring in other people, bring in, um, how choices affect other people, how the things we say affect other people. Um, and, and just, it's kind of like enriching our dialogue with our kids, um, instead of keeping it simple or, um, you know, and, and leaving out the nuance, it's like lean into that nuance, lean into the connections and the bigger picture of everything. And that is almost always constructive. Well, I appreciate that because that is like everything that we're doing on the podcast at this point. Is, <laughs> yes. Let's have <laughs> right? difficult conversations. I'm like four years. Yes, absolutely. Like it, it is, it is so unbelievably important to lean into those uncomfortable conversations. And, uh, I think my kids have gotten to the point where they're like, Oh, here we go. Uh, because <laughs> I, if they ask something or, you know, if there's something that's going on, they're going to know about it. <laughs> it's like, right. We've yeah, got to talk you about it. Guess what happened in the news today? <laughs> or they'll ask me what, what I've been working on, on my book. And, uh, you know, it's just become commonplace. They have seen your book by the way. And, uh, <laughs> And, and they, and they refer to it, uh, by the one word that, you know, <laughs> yes, like, bet, Oh, you're doing the, you're reading, you're reading that book. Um, <laughs> so, you know how kids love to do that. And we're like, Ooh, yep. 
holes. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So uh, they'll be very excited that I interviewed you today. So (laughs) (laughs) give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book and the work you're doing? My website is kind of like the one-stop shop for everything. So it's melindawennermoyer.com. Um, you can, there's links to, to where you can buy the book. Um, there's also uh, links to sign up for my newsletter. I write a parenting advice newsletter that really answers parenting questions with science. Um, and also my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that is um, all on my website too. Excellent. Yes. The book is filled with great science and studies, research, so much information that helps us to understand why we should be doing things in certain ways and why we should not be doing things in other ways, things that are outdated, things that don't work. And it's just so appreciated. I want to thank you for coming on today and sharing your insight and your strategies and what you've learned from the science. So important. Uh, I I love the whole idea of connecting the dots and, and really helping kids to realize that their behavior does impact other people. And there are things that we can do to highlight that and things that we can do to help raise kids that aren't big jerks. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Robin. It's my pleasure. Well, thank you. And my, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. Also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about all the things that Melinda talked about today and being able to use these scientific studies in their own homes to support really positive behavior. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts are up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storm and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. Maybe you heard something today and you're like, oh, I've totally messed up on that. Boy, did I make a mistake with that conversation? Or boy, did I do the wrong thing in that situation? Don't worry about it. You know, we all make mistakes and mistakes we can learn from, we can grow from. Never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. You can do it differently tonight. You can do it differently after school. You can do it differently tomorrow. And when there are moments we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.